Thank you, David, for reading for us from the prophet Jeremiah, a word of hope and a word of promise that God will renew his covenant with his people and that all will be made right in God's great world. Our faith in God is always built on hope. Hope that something good will come, that God will bring something good about in this dark and broken world. Only God can, and only God will, and that has been our hope from the very beginning. Starting today, and moving into the next several weeks, we're going to focus our attention in this time on the book of Revelation. Um, I realized as I looked back through my notes that I have not preached from Revelation very often in my time here, and I thought that that would be a, a good challenge for all of us to take up, especially since a number of readings from Revelation show up in the lectionary, the common resource that many churches use for their scripture readings from week to week. For the next few weeks, Revelation is on, uh, on deck, so to speak, to use a baseball metaphor. So um, I thought it would be good for us to, to take advantage of the opportunity and think about Revelation together. But before we read any of it, I just want to do a little bit of a, a poll of the congregation, a bit here, to get a, a little bit of feedback from you about what comes to mind when you think about Revelation. What comes to your mind when you think about this book? The end of time. Okay, there are no wrong answers here. I'll take whatever you give. Leslie. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about prophecy, and we look at the world as it is today, and the news reports that we get, and we shouldn't maybe be surprised by what we see. Okay. Okay. The seals. The seals. Right. Not this kind of seals that you know bat balls on their noses. Um, but yeah, there's something about seals being opened. Yes. Okay. Fear. Yeah. Fear. Was that you, Leslie? It said fear. What about fear? Um, well, to me, like I was saying, with like what's going on in the world, so yeah. there's a lot of fear because people, the life is, you know, it's unknown. Yeah. It's there and the answers are there. Yeah. So, so fear is part of kind of our human condition, but this book, this final book of the Bible, can sort of alleviate some of those fears. Mm-hmm. Majesty. Okay, Nancy, can't let Leslie off the hook with one word answer. Can't let you off either. Say a little bit more about majesty. It is. Heaven's described in, in, a, in great detail, in marvelous detail, very majestic detail. Yeah, the, the, the end has been assured from the beginning. Um, we, we can trust in, in the end coming as, as it's somehow described here. Um, yeah, good, 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 good. The wisdom slash stupidity. The wisdom slash stupidity of... Okay. 
Okay? You read it to gain wisdom, but it makes it feel stupid. Why does it make you feel stupid, Deanne? Because I don't understand. Right. Yeah. Because you don't understand it because... All these creatures. Yeah. There's so much stuff. Right. There are so many symbols. Uh, Pam, you said symbolism. The seals you mentioned. Um, yeah, the, the creatures that are described. It's all very fantastical and is not like much else in scripture. So it's hard for us to make sense of. Yeah. Sorry? The four horsemen. Yeah. This was on Jeopardy. Did you see this? Yeah. The, the King James Bible was the clue. If you've been watching this thing with, uh, what's his name, winning forever. He's never going to lose. Jesus will return before this guy loses Jeopardy, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, the King James Bible was the final Jeopardy clue, and, and it wasn't. Oh, no. Yeah. That was named. Yeah, the writer was named. It called death. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you're <laughs> good for you, Nancy, isn't it? Oh man, fun times. Yeah, so so it's part of kind of. I mean, that that question showing up in Jeopardy shows that the ideas from Revelation are kind of part of our common cultural mythology about what the end of time will look like. It's language that general people sort of know. Um, there are four horsemen, and one of them is called death, and this has something to do with how things are... So, so this is really important stuff for us to be aware of and to be comfortable with, um, and, and to be comfortable sometimes not knowing exactly what it is about, uh, because there's a lot of really strange and disturbing, disturbing imagery in Revelation. A lot of it's very majestic. A lot of it's really disturbing, too. Um, and it's hard to make sense of it all. And there are many methods of interpretation, many ways that people over the years have understood or tried to make sense of the different elements in this book. Now, my goal in this five or six weeks period is not to make sense of everything for you, because that's not going to happen. Um, my goal is to, is to bring to light some of these passages that can point us in the direction of God's majesty or of a message of hope that is ultimately good uh, for, for all who believe in Christ. We can find really anything that we want in the book of Revelation. And this is sort of a generally true biblical principle. Anywhere in scripture, if you're looking for something, you can find something in scripture to support it. Um, if you have a, a belief that you want to be true, you can probably find some scripture to support it. You might be pulling it way out of context, but you can probably do that. Um, so we have to be really careful when we get to things, especially that are very difficult to understand, like Revelation, because we might come to the table with, well, I know it's going to say this, and so look, it does say that, when uh, perhaps, perhaps there's something different for it to say um, if, we, if we listen. And this whole principle, I think, is very important because we often approach Scripture with a sense of control. We know what the Scripture is going to say, and we force it then to reinforce what we believe. And that's partly because we want to be in charge of things. We, we like to be in control of life. And when life gets out of our control, we feel very out of whack. 
this is not good when life is not in, under control. Um, I had an experience this week uh, of kind of dealing with that on a number of different levels. My family is going through some, some health issues. You might remember my mother had, uh, had a, a surgery for cancer treatment uh, last fall. That's all good. The radiation is good. There's no sign of cancer left in her body. Uh, so this is all thumbs up. This week, my dad has had a biopsy done. We're waiting on some results to see what's happening with him. And then my brother went and had something that looked like a heart attack um, on Thursday. Turns out it wasn't a heart attack. He has some other medical issues going on, but they ruled it out that it was not heart-related, but it's something that he's going to have to keep an eye on. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, my goodness, life is not always very constant and fixed and predictable. We don't like it when we're not in that state, when we're, when we're in a place of unpredictability. So we turn sometimes to Scripture to find some kind of control in our lives. And we end up controlling Scripture to make it fit what we want it to say. We should allow Scripture to form us rather than allowing ourselves to form Scripture. We should slow down and quiet ourselves and listen deeply to what God is saying to his people through this book. Adopting a posture of humility and openness and receptivity to what God is saying is crucial any time we approach scripture, but probably especially at a time when we're looking at this most confusing final book of the Bible. So let's take a moment just now to quiet ourselves before God And then I will read the sermon text for the day. God, we give you thanks that you are present with us in all circumstances. We give you thanks that your word speaks truth into our world and into our lives. Help us to listen to your spirit as we center ourselves in your presence and concentrate on your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven eyes and seven horns. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests 
to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Revelation is composed mostly of a type of literature called apocalyptic literature. Mostly, there are some letters at the beginning that are not apocalyptic, but the bulk of the book, including this, is apocalyptic literature. And it's a type of literature that was relatively common in its time, and even before its time, in in the centuries before Jesus. Apocalyptic literature means literature that reveals something. I'm pulling back a curtain with my hand here. Uh, apocalyptic means revelation. They're, the words mean the same thing. Uh, apocalyptic doesn't mean Armageddon, end of the world. It means revealing. The word means to reveal something that has been hidden up to this point. It's pulling back the curtain to show what truly is or what truly will be. Apocalyptic literature uses strong and dramatic and strange and unusual imagery to communicate ideas. It is a type of literature that is not meant, not intended to be taken scientifically, uh, literally, as if every element is exactly true like you would read it in a newspaper or a history book, something like that. Truth is communicated through symbolism in this type of literature, through images, through impressions that the literature leaves on those who read it. There are other examples of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Um, The Old Testament prophet Zechariah has a good bit of apocalyptic literature. There are a couple of parts in Isaiah that are apocalyptic, especially the last half of Daniel. Um, The book of Daniel, we know the lion's den, and we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, but we don't know the last half of it, (laughs) because the last half of it's this weird stuff, uh, this apocalyptic stuff that has all of this imagery that's hard to understand or even remember after you've read it. Many of the details, the seven eyes, the seven spirits, the, the, the harps and the falling down in worship, many of the details that show up in Revelation 5 are kind of lifted and transported from these Old Testament sources and some sources that are not in Scripture from between the Old and New Testaments uh, and repurposed in this writing here. Uh, John, the author of Revelation, isn't inventing the language. He's using old material to reform and, and create something new 
that reminds people about who Jesus is. Because that's what this is all about. Who Jesus is. The chapter, Revelation 5, begins with this scroll showing up. It focuses on a scroll that has writing on both sides and it's sealed with the seven seals that Pam mentioned. Not the animals, but the seals that no one can open. This, is, this causes great distress to John, the author of Revelation, that nobody can open this, this scroll. Nobody in all creation can undo the seals or even look inside to see what's on the scroll. But then, but then, Someone shows up who can. And John begins by describing this person who's meant to remind us of Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus. Jesus shows up in the scene. He begins to be described as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, with some very regal kind of language to describe uh, Jesus' royal nature and the fact that he is king of all kings, lord of all lords, and he alone has power to open this scroll, which, by the way, we never find out what's written on it in the whole book. It doesn't say this is what was written. We don't know. It's just something that only Jesus can undo and read. But what's significant at this point in this chapter where we have this enormous worship scene with all of creation joining in worship of Jesus is not the fact that they're worshiping the lion of Judah, but that they're worshiping the lamb who has been slain. The imagery shifts here in a dramatic fashion. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, most of the imagery about Jesus has to do with him as a lamb. A lamb who has been slain. Not so much the lion from the tribe of Judah. Lions are strong and mighty and powerful and victorious. But Jesus is not to be worshipped because of any of those reasons. Jesus is to be worshipped because he is the lamb who was slain. See, the way of Jesus is not the way of conquest and domination. The path of Jesus is the path of death and resurrection. It's been that way from the beginning. He is the Lion of Judah, but he is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus conquers sin and death by being conquered by sin and death, and then overcoming them both. This is more than just an image. It is an important indication of the kind of Savior That Jesus is. He is the lamb. An animal that is meek. Fragile. Not terribly aggressive or powerful. Able to be sacrificed. Not naturally inclined to fight back. Not a predator. But prey. This goes against our cultural instincts. We want a savior who is strong and mighty and powerful. We want to be in control. We want to be victorious. We want to fight back. We want to seek revenge. We want to defend ourselves. We want to do preemptive strikes. We want to be in power. But Jesus does not exercise that kind of power. Yes, As Revelation unfolds, Jesus is at the helm of a very bloody and very gory battle. 
that takes place at the end of time. That's the envisioned uh, reality that John has. And it's the final battle between good and evil. But here's the point of apocalyptic literature. That future outcome is already determined because Jesus has ultimate power now. And the only reason Jesus has ultimate power now is because he, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has gone through death and resurrection and has emerged victorious. So everyone in the scene cries out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. No one else is worthy of the title of Messiah. No one else is worthy to be our leader. No one else is worthy of our praise. It's important, and we often miss it at a first reading, to recognize that this passage elevates Jesus to the same level as God. This is a a worship scene of Jesus as divine. We, We don't often recognize it because we take it for granted a lot of the time. But Jesus is portrayed as worthy of praise just as God is worthy of praise. And so the path of Jesus, the path of death and resurrection, is not just his path. It's the way of God. This is how God has designed to bring life to this world. The answers to our deepest questions about how to handle the uncertainties of our lives the lack of control that is just so normal, but we don't like it. The answers to our deepest questions are not found in ourselves. They're not found in our own power. But those answers are found in the Lamb who gave himself to purchase us so that we might be first fruits offered to God. Notice in this chapter that there is no opposition to this story. There are no people around who ignore Jesus. There are no enemies to be seen. Jesus has purchased people from God, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, a countless number of angels and circle the throne to sing praise to the lamb. Every creature in heaven and earth and everywhere else joins in praise. There are no dissenting voices here. There are no complaints. There is no exclusion. There are no, uh, there's no kind of superiority of one people being better than another people. Everyone everywhere gathers around the throne and sings, worthy is the lamb. This is the hopeful picture of the future that Revelation paints for us. The lamb who was slain inspires universal praise and adoration. Everyone is included. Everyone sings. Everyone praises God. Everyone worships Jesus. The circle of inclusion is wide. And the lamb who was slain stands at the center of it all, receiving praise and adoration from everyone and everything. That's something to look forward to. We do not need to be afraid of revelation or of the future or of events happening in our world even now. We do not even need to be in control of everything that goes on in our lives. 
we can find our deepest identity in the Lamb who was slain, the one who inspires this universal praise and adoration. So I'd invite you this week to take some time in the midst of your, in the midst of your chaotic life or in the midst of your peaceful life, however life finds you this week. Take some time to contemplate the beauty of the Lamb who was slain. Sing praise in your heart in a personal way. But also bring this image to mind in the midst of your relationships with others, which might be complicated or painful. And ask yourself how the universal scene of worship here in Revelation 5 might affect your feelings of animosity or division or hatred or vengeance or separation from others. Ask yourself how this scene might affect your desire to be in control. The lamb at the center is in control of it all. As you reflect on this image of Jesus through this coming week, ask him how you might become more like him. Not at the center of the universe. There can only be one of those. But to become more like him in pursuing his path of death and resurrection. How might we become more like Jesus this week? And so anticipate this wonderful reunion, this eternal gathering with all creation to worship the one who is at the center of it all. What we do this week matters because this is preparation, a dress rehearsal of sorts. Everything, every choice we make, every interaction we have with people, every uh, opportunity we have to follow God or to turn from God is practice for this scene, which will take place at some point, sooner or later. All creation will join in praise. We should be practicing even now for that. Would you join me in prayer? God, we give you thanks for this mysterious book, this book that is difficult to understand, difficult to read, difficult to make sense of. Help us as we navigate a path through this book over the next few weeks to keep our eyes on you and to be, uh, to be preparing ourselves in your grace and in your mercy for this grand scene of worship that is the point of it all. Help us to find our identity in you and to follow you in all of life's circumstances so that we might proclaim your name and your truth and your love to all of those whom we meet. We thank you for this, for this chapter and we ask that you would uh, emblazon it in our memories for the week to come so that we might be more and more ready for that moment to arrive. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our closing song for the day is a song that it comes from this chapter. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. Uh, I invite you to stand if you're able and we'll get a bit of a taste of what that chapter might look like someday by singing Revelation's song. <laughs>